Now you're on to football centric. Yo, welcome back, guys, to another exciting episode of Football Centric. The dust has finally settled after all said and gone. After 354 days in which we've seen 1,030 goals across 380 matches, the Premier League season for the 1920 campaign is finally done. And unfortunately for us, we didn't get the joy of seeing two or more teams contend for the title because Liverpool ran away with it. But you're getting the best of two today as the dynamic duo are back. I am Olu Adamiloju Sali, and of course, I'll be doing this with Toby Adebiyi. Hi, Adamiloju, what's going on? I mean, this has been a really, really interesting um, restart to the season because um, it's really been one season uh, people enjoyed because I, for one, definitely enjoyed not necessarily the race for the title, but um, the top four race and also the drama that ensued for the race for survival. Those battles in the Premier League made this one one to remember. Of course, you'd include um, what the impact COVID-19 had on the season itself. But taking that aside, I think this was also a very, very enjoyable season. Yes, definitely. The 2019-2020 Premier League season is one no single footballing fan is going to forget. Not just Premier League fans, everybody across the world. Even a lot of people who don't watch football eventually got to participate in the Premier League <laughs> some way, shape, form, or because of the coronavirus pandemic. But we've already seen how peculiar the 2019-2020 season was. Is it the strangest, most captivating one you've ever seen? How would you describe the season as a whole, if you were to tell it to someone else? Uh, a very strange season, yeah. First off, a season that has Liverpool winning the title is strange itself because it <laughs> hap- it, it's never happened in Premier League history. And then COVID-19 came and really distorted the flow. I mean, there are some club sides and some fans who feel hard done by the impact of COVID-19 because prior to the lockdown itself, they were on good form, queuing Leicester City. You know, they, they, they could confidently see themselves finish in the top four. And then lockdown came and something just happened afterwards. They just couldn't get their rhythm and other teams took advantage and eventually they finished fifth. So if I'm going to explain this season to somebody in the future, I'll probably say it's going to be um, remembered best for being distorted, being the season Liverpool won their first league title, beating almost, in fact, beating every team in the Premier League itself. And... Um, just a very, very strange season, basically. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. Strange is a word that for years to come, we'll use to describe this season. If the other words we're going to use to describe it, weird, peculiar, uncommon. I mean, it's just been a really, really chaotic season. Yeah, that's another word that is going to come into the mix. Yeah. Of course, the champions of the league, Liverpool. First league title in over 25 years, in over 27, 28 years of the Premier League officially. First one since 1990. Brings us to one of the most peculiar things that happened in the Premier League. We saw the introduction of video assistant referee. And believe me or not, it's going to be talked about for years to come. The very first season in the Premier League. But how will you rate VR's performances seeing that it made its debut in the Premier League this season and going forward, are you for or against the continued use of VAR? Um, I I am 100% for the use of VAR, but I'm also 100% mm. for 
re, for readjustment. I mean, um, the VAR okay. was was brought in to ease decision making from the ref for the referees, making sure that no um, decision gets no no decision is given incorrectly. Um, yeah, it was meant to help the ref. It was meant to totally totally was meant to totally take away issues of errors, issues of different issues, but. It has really not done that 100% this season. Um, it is still, I, I still, I still want to conclude that it's a work in progress. I think it's going to get better over the years because this is the first year in Premier League. And um, I wouldn't want to read too much into all of the prices, all of the um, criticisms it got. It has a lot of room for improvement, a whole lot of room. For- okay. Um, so let's look at some of the referees getting. I couldn't yeah, hear you the, anymore. The pitch side screens that I want to see using, use, being used more often than not. I'd want to see better decision making from the referees with the use of VAR, not what we had this season. I'd want to see VAR coming to also assist the goal line technology. So we don't have the case we had when Aston Villa played against Sheffield United and the ball went in and couldn't be picked by um, the goal line technology and VAR that saw it couldn't give the referee the right decision. So those are the loopholes I'd want VAR to fix in the coming season. But I, I expect it to be a lot better. I mean, they will take in what they have, what has happened so far this season and try to readjust. One thing about the Premier League is they value excellence. And once they realize there's a problem, they always try to nip it in the bud and fix it. So I'd expect that for the VAR, seen, haven't seen the incidents that has happened this season and seeing the problems it created, They'll try as much as possible to rectify it, make it better, and um, fi- and uh, make it better, and um, just just turn it around to 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 what we hope it becomes in the coming season. So I'm I'm very sure that this season's VR, you know, would be a team a thing of the past come next season, uh, and um, yeah, like I said earlier, there's still a lot of improvement to be done in the VR aspect. Okay. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. And the fact that it was a debut season, you can understand why there were a few hiccups. I really don't agree with some of the very, very costly mistakes that went on. I mean, Villa would have gotten probably something bigger, something better and something big. Sorry, Villa would have gotten something less. Yeah. If that goal actually counted against them, they might not have been in the Premier League anymore. There's talks about someone like Burnley wanting to sue because of that decision and all whatnot. I just want a situation like you. I just want a situation where VAR comes in and limits all the mistakes that we have to the barest minimum. I understand because of implementation, we might not be able to eradicate them 100%, but let's have a situation where we have next to no errors in the Premier League. But having said all that, first season with video assistant referee on a scale of 1 to 10, how will you rate its performance in the Premier League? To be very honest, I think it wasn't excellent. So it's, it's definitely going to be a 10 over 10 for me. I personally feel that the VR probably rates like six and a half over 10. Hmm. Okay. I think you're being very generous. I probably would have given them like a five, maybe five and a half at best. But hey, I mean, that's why we have two of us on the show, polarizing, um, polarizing opinions. But I, I'm sure it's going to get more polarizing as we get into some of the next things that we're going to discuss. We know the season is over, so it's definitely time for us to hand out our awards. 
a lot of people did some amazing things this season. Some names scream out at the top of our head after such great Premier League performances. But let's go into the awards. And it's going to be super interesting because... Jordan Henderson winning the Football Writers Association Player of the Year still cost a whole lot of stay on social media. We don't know when the yeah. PFA team is going to be out. Before it comes out officially, we on Football Centric would like to give you our two cents. So, let's start with the PFA team of the year. We're coming to the PFA Player of the Year, but let's start with the team of the year. First of all, what formation with your team? There's not a big there in itself. Sorry, come again. I didn't hear you clearly. I said, so what kind of formation would your PFA team of the year take? Because already balancing midfielders and attackers seems like a very big headache. Yeah, I think I would just go with a traditional 4-3-3 because that's like the only formation that can help you take almost every part of um, the... That can help you select more midfielders and enough strikers as well. So I'll go with 4-3-3. Okay, four three three. We're already having different opinions. I'm gonna go with a four four two, but this is super interesting. Let, let's start with goalkeeper for the team of the season. Um for goalkeeper, to be very honest, I, I was I've been in, very, very impressed with um Anderson. Um, Dean Anderson at Sheffield United from on loan um, from Manchester United to Sheffield. He really, really impressed me. Although he also made a few errors leading to goal, key win the one against mm-hmm. Liverpool earlier in the season. I've also been impressed by Nick Pope, who up until the last game mm-hmm. was in the running for the Golden Glove. But ultimately, yeah. my goalkeeper of the season has to be Ederson for Manchester City. Not just mm-hmm. because he won the Golden Glove, but he's um, he's he's your number one modern goalkeeper. He sweeps. He saves. He's very confident. He commands his area very well, except from a few errors. Yeah, that even that that doesn't that even the greatest goalkeepers also suffer. I think he's been super amazing this season. I would have gone for Allison, but he he didn't. You know, it wasn't in goal for a lot of games, and then he considered four against Liverpool and three against Chelsea. So I really wouldn't rate him that high, but for me personally, I think um, Edison, Manchester City's goalkeeper, really is my number one. Brilliantly said. I can um, <clears throat> brilliantly said. I can understand one hundred percent why you went for Edison, especially when you're looking for the modern day goalkeeper as your model and your yardstick, and he still finished with the most clean sheets. But for me, I would just tilt slightly towards Nick Pope for my goalkeeper of the season. And that's because he made the fourth most saves in the whole Premier League, 120, and also finished second for clean sheets. So despite playing for a Burnley side who weren't top tier this season, they weren't in the top seven, so they were in the top third of the league. And they had a lot of shots being barraged at their goal. He averaged 3.2 saves per game. He was still able to finish second in clean sheets. So just because of that, for me, Nick Pope edges out Edison. Major shout-outs to um, Henderson also, as well as Alisson, but it's Nick Pope for me. Okay, let's move over to the defence. I, I don't think both of us should have major disparity or issues in this one. <laughs> I assume Nope is dominated by Liverpool players. I'm right, yeah? Yeah, you are. No, 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 there is... I there is, can't think of any other pair of defenders that would make up your 
uh, team of the year if you don't include three or four of them, in, in fact. Yeah, at least three. Yeah. So let me okay. start. Um, I think for me, of course, Virgil van Dijk definitely has to be in that defense because he clearly is if not the best defender in the world at the moment, he has everything. He's strong. He's fast enough for a defender. He reads the game perfectly. He tackles well. Uh, he is, is good aerially. He's good on the ground. He makes tackles. I mean, he is everything um, a defender wants. He, is, he has everything in him. And um, he's also won a league title as well. So that says it all. So Benji Van Dijk makes it for me a centre-back. And I think I would, not for how he performed this season, but basically for what he can do and what he's done over time, I think I would pair him up with Emmerich Laporte at Manchester City. Because if you put Virgil van Dijk at the right centre-back position, you definitely will have someone like um, Emmerich Laporte playing the left centre-back position. He's left-footed, of course, but he is also just as good as Virgil van Dijk. Maybe not as fast as, as he is, but he's also a brilliant tackler. He's also fantastic at bringing out the ball. He's a very great ball-playing defender, you know. That's the kind of defenders Pep Guardiola likes. And he, he does that with such a plumb. He reads the game perfectly. He's also good. He dominates the air as well. So I think those will make fantastic pairing. That's and Virgil van Dijk and Eric Laporte. And for left back and right back, to be honest, I think they pick themselves. <laughs> Andrew yeah. Robertson for left back, bombing forward. He's got pace. He can press high. He can defend as well. I mean, he's very, very rough. Like he can be rugged. He can be. He can choose to tackle as hard as you want him to. And um, for right back, definitely Trent Alexander-Arnold. If not for anything, for the fact that he also knows how to create assists. I mean, these days you need right backs that can bump forward and come back. Right foot, right backs that um, can do the defensive parts, but can also create a lot going forward. I think for Trent Alexander-Arnold, his major weapon is his right foot. He knows how to deliver amazing balls up top for any of his attackers. Wonder why he's gotten... It makes, I mean, it's no surprise that he, he, he's gotten 13 assists this season, toppling his own record from last year where he got 12. And guess who equaled his record from last season? Andy Robertson. So, I mean, the defense picks itself, honestly. I couldn't agree with you more, Toby. I mean, you literally took the numbers out of my head. 13 assists for Trent, 12 assists for Robertson. They were second and third, respectively, in the whole assist charts, only behind we know who Kevin De Bruyne. And I would agree with your back four, 75%, meaning <laughs> the three Liverpool players that are in your back four definitely make it to my back four. You've already explained all the reasons. I don't need to go over that. The Laporte situation, I can understand for the balance. But if we're looking at this season, he didn't play too many games, even though you can say that's a major reason why Manchester City fell so far behind Liverpool. But I think, based on what I've seen this season, it was very difficult for me to get. But I think I liked what Son Yuchu brought to Leicester over the whole course of the season. I know he tailed off after the restart, but I think the fact that he was such a major part of Leicester finishing 
as high as they did, even though they eventually tailed off. Like I said, they were up there in the top three. I couldn't really find any other centre back. I consider the Wolves players at the point they all dropped off. You can't really consider Maguire, even though he had a good season. The same thing he tailed off. But all in all, I just felt based on performances this season, Burnley centre backs and maybe a few Sheffield United ones also came to my mind. But Son YouTube just edges it for me. But I mean, that's why it's an individual team of the season. I guess we're going to always have one or two of these debates. So let's leave the back four. It's getting a lot more tricky now. You have a midfield three. I have a yeah. midfield two. So let's start with why you picked the midfield. Okay, you've already told us why you picked the midfield three to accommodate as many midfielders and attackers. But who are those in your midfield three, of course. Sorry, who are the two that are joining De Bruyne? Let's just put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a no-brainer. Everyone has to pick De Bruyne. It's going to be very hard to see a team of the year without KDB here. He clearly is the best player in the Premier League, putting it simply. But personally, I, I think in my midfield three, definitely Kevin De Bruyne, of course, will be in the mix. So the other two, for the defensive midfield part, I'm not going to be playing with a register this time around. I want someone who can actually someone that can break up attacks, someone that can be the shield in front of the defense. So I'm straight up going for my Nigerian brother, and that's Wilfred Ndidi, who was absolutely phenomenal for Leicester City this season. On route, yeah, very impressive run. He he was colossal to that that run. He was the guy who allowed the other guys, you know, go forward um, from um, from Madison to um, Tillemans and the other guys. So. I'm definitely going to go for Wilfred in the right, right there, playing my number six, who's going to sit in front of the defense. And of course, um, in my attacking midfield, of course, we'll have um, Kevin De Bruyne, who was spellbinding this season, all through putting on virtual performance in all, almost all the games. No wonder he created 20 assists, equaling on his record. In fact, it, it feels even worse that he had three assists ruled off. For me, they were incorrectly ruled off. So it could easily have been the record holder you get. So yeah. I definitely have um, KDB in the mix there. And the other midfielder who, would, who I would have in that lineup, well, up until the restart, he, he clearly was one of the most interesting players that I was watching in the Premier League with how he was delivering for, for his club week in, week out. And it might, it might, it might, it might really cause a little, a little surprise from people, but... I'm going to stick with uh, James Madison at Leicester City also because mm. I, I really like the kind of player he is. I really like the performances he was putting on. Would, would also... Leicester started tailing off when he, pick, when, when he became, you know, when he started pick, picking up injuries and wasn't able to feature in some games. And um, it just happened that Leicester capitulated around that period. So he was the guy who was making all these things work. Leicester City scored a lot of goals, not as much as, uh, as, as Chelsea or Liverpool or, or Manchester, Manchester City, who were the, who were the top three goal-scoring sides in the Premier League. But they did, they are among the top five goal-scoring sides in the Premier League. And um, he played a key role in almost, in virtually all their goals. Like he had a hand in almost all their goals because he was the guy in charge of set pieces. He was the guy who was trying to make play from deep alongside the Utilemans. So I, I'm going to be sneaking in um, James Madison in my midfield three. So it's going to be Wilfred Ndidi, James Madison, and Kevin De Bruyne. Okay. I mean, I, I could understand when you were slowly getting to Madison that it was going to be a name that was going to cause a bit of a stare. 
which is which is totally understandable. You already mentioned how you looked at his form majorly before the restart. I mean, what I would say about Madison is if we did a team of the season from the beginning till February, most likely without a shadow of doubt, Madison would have been in my team. But I think when you look over the extended... I lost you. I lost you there. Wayne said over the... That's last thing I heard. So we'll just restart. Um, so con- okay, now I can hear you again. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, so the over the part. Okay, so I'll just uh, let me see. Okay, I, I, I know how to do it. Okay, <clears throat> I mean, if you asked me to pick the Premier League team of the season from August all the way to February, most definitely James Madison would have made it into my team. But when I now add the restart, I feel a few other players just were able to edge him out. I mean, his form really, really tailed off even before he started suffering the injuries. And I think that is why I'm going for a midfield two. Because, I mean, there were so many attackers in the Premier League, from strikers to wingers, that I just couldn't fancy not putting them in my team. Even with the four places I have for attackers, two wingers and two strikers, I still have not put as many people buff, but my midfield is just going to be a midfield too. Obviously, Mr. Number One is definitely there, Kevin De Bruyne, 33 goal contributions. I'm not going to say much about that. He pretty much just picks himself straight into that lineup. But the person I'm going to pair alongside Kevin De Bruyne for my two-man central midfield was part of the title-winning team, and it's Jordan Henderson. Now, this is one that has a lot of stay on social media. But I also looked at Jordan Henderson's numbers. He got four goals. He got five assists from deep, playing as pretty much one of the deepest midfielders for Liverpool. I know yeah, Fabinho starts as a DM. But also, he was getting in tackles, interceptions, and how he was able to drive this Liverpool team. I just feel when we're talking about the team of the season, you cannot talk about the team of the season without talking about how well Liverpool played. And if you're talking about how well Liverpool played, you cannot remove Jordan Henderson and his effect also as a captain, from how well they performed. So for me, it's KDB and Jordan Henderson. And yes, I know that I'm going to get a lot of eyebrows raised at me, but well, no problem. We'll get to see how the full team looks like going forward. So, okay, uh, maybe I should, maybe I, then uh, let, me, let me just go first with my two wingers before we now get to the forwards. Because I know when you're talking about your forwards, you talk about your two wingers and your striker. For me, I think... I think Salah picks himself. Okay, I really please, do. like, start again. Like, I really do, because I think, I think for again. me, going into the wingers, at right wing, I think Salah picks himself. I don't think the right winger who okay. had the same effect as Mohamed Salah did for his club. A lot of people have said, yes, Salah was very selfish throughout the season, and then there were times like the betterment of the team. But let's look at his numbers. Salah got 19 goals and 10 assists. I think only Kevin De Bruyne had more goal contributions than him. Yeah, 29. Vardy had 28. So yeah, Mohamed Salah had the second most goal contributions and he was able to lead Liverpool to winning the league. He was their highest goal scorer. So I don't think we can do a team of the season without putting Mohamed Salah. And I mean, I'll throw the question to anybody. Which other right winger will you pick ahead of Mohamed Salah? So I think that pretty much explains. For the left wing, it was more tricky. Because I'm looking at Mane, I'm looking at Sterling, and 
some sometimes Aubameyang was deployed as a left winger for Arsenal. It was very tough for me, but like I said, we're looking at the best team of the season, and without a doubt, the best team in the league was Liverpool. And Mane, with his 18 goals, came up clutch for Liverpool in some very important games. There were matches where Mane scored the only goal or the winning goal. I think that cannot be overestimated. Major shout-out to Raheem Sterling for clocking 20 goals. But I think Raheem Sterling's form was way too patchy. He started the season like a house on fire. In the middle of the season, he really tailed off. And then at the later part of the season, he picked up his form again. So just because of this, I will put... Sadio Mane alongside Mohamed Salah. And that's already six Liverpool players in my team of the season. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> well, I think for me, I'm going to agree with you on your selections for the wingers because those, right. uh, those are my other wingers as well. You can't pick better wingers right now than Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane. Like, they pick themselves. Salah on the right wing. Money on the left wing. It's clear they're going to give whatever position you have a tough time. And both of them also are goal-getters as well. They are not just pure wingers. They are inside forwards. They can play as wingers. They are fast. They are strong. And they can clearly finish goals and create goals also for themselves. Maybe Salah can be guilty of being selfish a lot of times. But he also you know, contributes a lot, a lot to his team. And it's, it's, it's just easy for me to pick both money and Salah in my own team of the season. But for now, that, that's that. Those are the players I'm going to pick. So I have just one slot mm-hmm. left, and that's the <laughs> striking slot. Now, this is really, really, really tricky because this season we saw all types of attackers. I mean, attackers we didn't fancy getting as many goals as um, they eventually did. You know, this is the likes of Danny Ings. Even Jimmy Vardy from the onset wasn't tipped to become the top goal scorer and clearly ended up as one. Um, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang was definitely amongst the guys who expected to finish as high as he did and he didn't disappoint. So if I were to pick one player who would um, top strike in my own team, I would unfortunately not be going for Jimmy Vardy because I... I, I he just does I don't know. For yeah, he, he got a couple of goals. We got he ended up being the top goal scorer in the Premier League. But I think they are better strikers than him in the Premier League. So you have them. You have Jimmy Vardy and the other guys. And I just think you know personally, I wouldn't select Jimmy Vardy as my as my striker because I feel yes, he just doesn't for me personally. Just cut it as a striker would want to have. In that, line, in that lineup, because if you notice, I've got pace already up top. I have um, Salah, I have Mane. And um, yes, on current form, I also I'll suggest want to go for Vardy, but personally, I wouldn't go for him. I would more I would more than likely go for Danny Ings as my striker, because first off, he plays for Southampton. Southampton do not have the resources as Leicester City have. And um, he was able to get as many goals as he did this season. So he finished just behind um, Pierre-America Moyang and Jamie Vardy. But I still take him as my as my striker because he embodies everything the other guys do not have. Um, he, he can play well with his back to goal. He's also very clinical. He has uh, he has that that tenacity to do something extraordinary. And um, yes, uh, you can easily rule him out of a game. If he doesn't score, he can also um, play parts in making a goal. And I think that's why I'll, I'll go for him. And of course, probably because he's the underdog of the other strikers who finished um, 
with a shot of winning the Golden Boot. So my front three ends up being this. Sadio Mane, okay, I mean. Mohamed Salah, and Danny Ings. Wow, I mean, I already mentioned earlier on how we had a lot of strikers to actually consider for the player of the season, which is why I have two up top. I totally understand. For me, Danny Ings is a pretty much obvious choice. He scored 22 goals. Southampton scored a total of 51 goals. So Danny Ings was responsible for over 40% of Southampton's goals. I think nobody gave him a chance at the beginning of the season. A lot of people remember Danny Ings from the time he struggled with Liverpool. Is it Danny Ings? Yes. Exactly. So, I mean, for Southampton, it just shows you that Danny Ings has done really, really well. 22 goals is no mean feat whatsoever. So Danny Ings gets into my lineup. And, I mean, Aubameyang and Vardy is the next head-to-head for me. And it sounds very, very weird. It sounds very tricky and it sounds almost borderline insane that you would not put the highest goal scorer in your PFA team of the season. I've been back with but I'm, I'm looking at the numbers. Leicester scored 67 goals. Vardy was able to contribute 23 of them, but Arsenal scored 56 and Aubameyang scored 22 of the 56. So I just feel, honestly, I was reading something that a friend of mine wrote that he's an Arsenal fan. He said, if Aubameyang's goals are removed from Arsenal, they'll probably relegate or something. That's how important very, very effective Aubameyang was for Arsenal. So I think just based on that, I would just go with Aubameyang and Danying. It was very, very close. If I could have my way, I would have put all three strikers together. But I just think based on this season, with what we expected from them, with the service they had available to them, with the number of goals that their club scored in total and the percentage of contribution they had, it will be Aubameyang and Danny Ings for me going forward. Wow. So that's a, that's a really brilliant looking Premier League lineup. I mean, I think there's still going to be a lot of discussion on debate, but I will just run over my team once and then Toby will do the same. So you can decide you on the other side to let us know which team you think is better and how your own team will look like. But mine will be a 4 4 2. I've got Nick Pope in goal, Trent Alexander Arnold at right back, a centre back pairing of Virgil van Dijk and Kagra Sanyonchu. Robertson at left back, the midfield two, Henderson and Kevin De Bruyne. My wingers, of course, Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane, while it's Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang alongside Danny Ing up top. Okay, that's for you. And uh, mine, um, Edison in goal, there's Robertson and um, Trent Alexander-Arnold as the full-backs, a pair of Veggie Van Dijk and Emerick Laporte, centre-backs, and a midfield trio of Wilfred Ndidi, James Madison, and um, Kevin De Bruyne and a front three of Sadio Mane, Mohamed Salah, and Danny Ings. So, if I would add to it, so who do you think would be the coach of these teams? Ooh, ooh, that's 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 a very very brilliant question. That's a very interesting question. Talking about coach of the season, I, I think for for me, I've always had a a battle in my mind for coach of the season. Now, I'm even talking generally now. The coach of the season, should it be the best performer outrightly or the best performer in relation to what he had and what you expected from him going into the season? I think per, we, we always have that debate internally as yeah. to what, what, what would make a coach, uh, what, would, what, what would you name a coach as the best coach of the season? Would it be because of 
circumstances or um, what they eventually did. And I think you can have it both ways. Like both ways can actually define what makes you what what makes you select this coach. Different people have different reasons why they select a coach. I remember back in 2012, um, the coach of the year was um, Alan Padu because he took Newcastle to fifth, and um, that season was the year Manchester City won the, won the uh, Premier League title for the first time in their history, and um, um, Roberto Martinez didn't get a look in. So different, you have different factors. But personally, though, I always also look at what the coaches, who are, the coaches in question, you know, how they've made use of the resources they have. Some coaches have inferior resources and they make good of them. Queuing um, Chris Wilder at Sheffield and um, also mentioned, you know, Espirito Santos at Wolves, all the underdogs coming through with little or not too much resources. And then you can also... I mentioned Brendan Rogers. It would have had a very good shot if Leicester City had finished um, in the top three as they were at some point in the season. But we have different reasons why we, we, we give these coaches. But I think for me, it's necessarily not about the amount of success. It is about the amount of success the coach has with compared with compared to um, the amount of resources he has. Okay, But the success has to be quite glaring because we can also say that some teams have destined to get relegated and um, if, if they get relegated I mean the coach will tell you he used his score to the best way to, to the best um, they could come up with so getting relegated in his, in his own sense might be some sort of um, vindication as to how horrible the squad is but I think it's, it's about how well the coach uses the team he has to achieve a certain element of success and success we know can be relative in this yeah. Okay, so despite this, your explanation, it's very difficult to still have a clear indication as to what particular criteria should be used to judge the coach. But you already mentioned something very brilliant, that it's very subjective. And it just means that it depends on what exactly you feel. And there's going to be a lot of different answers based on whoever it is that is speaking something. Having said that, I think it would be something of a disservice if someone like Chris Wilder gets to miss out, even though clearly Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool went on to win the league. I mean, especially in the manner in which Liverpool went on to win the league, they absolutely blazed past everyone. I don't think we've ever seen a Premier League campaign that there was such a disparity between the first and second. If you thought the 19 points that Manchester City gave Manchester United two seasons ago was so wide, then you have to look at this and think again. Having said that, for a team that were just promoted this season to go within touching distance of actually qualifying for Europe, I think that was absolutely immense. I don't think anybody gave Sheffield United a chance. A lot of people might not have penned them down for relegation immediately, but certainly nobody expected that Swansea will be, like we saw at the point in the season, actually challenging for a top four place. Having said that, I think just because of that, I will just edge and give Chris Wilder the manager of the season by his breath because I take nothing away from what Jurgen Klopp has done. It's going to be very difficult to see someone replicate something as amazing as what this Liverpool team has done. I know they fell by the wayside. They weren't able, able to go unbeaten. They weren't able to create the points record. But the way in which they blew past teams, especially if you look at how long they went without losing a game, I still think Jurgen Klopp has been absolutely amazing, but maybe I'll just say by 0.00000 
I will just give my manager of the season to Chris Wilder. It's really tough, I must tell you. Extremely difficult. Uh, well, personally, I, I agree with you. Um, Chris Wilder was phenomenal for, for, for um, Sheffield United this season. Let him as high as they could ever, ever imagine. Nobody would have thought you know, Sheffield United at some point were actually, in fact, once, it, once when the season restarted, they were still in the mix to have a top four finish. But they just killed off at some point in, in the second half of the season. But personally, I think I would go for Jurgen Klopp. Um, he, he, he absolutely blazed through the season. Um, considering the fact that last year, they were very, very close to nicking the title. I mean, you, you do not often see teams who get that close, you know, put up another fight in next year. But next season, they went one step further by winning the title and um, went two points for them, in fact, because last year they went as far as finishing um, with 97 points, which was the highest ever point tally a second-place team will finish with in the Premier League history. Yeah. And went two points better this time around by finishing with 99 points. Could have equaled City's um, 100 points um, 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 tally, but that was just wasn't possible eventually. But I think Jurgen Klopp deserves to be my, play, my, my manager of the season because, I mean, as much as you say Chris Wilder did this and that, he still finished ninth on the league table and it's very, very unfair to just, uh, you know, select him ahead of Jürgen Klopp, who was, I mean, he finished about only 20 points ahead of Manchester City. That alone itself, you know, deserves <laughs> deserves um, a, a shout at being the best manager in the land. And it wasn't any surprises that he also carried away um, the league manager's awards just a couple, just uh, some, some hours ago. And it uh, makes you just wonder, you know... That that really, which which to an extent just justifies my own selection as to him being um, the the manager of the season. All right, I mean it will be really interesting because what got us to this point was you asking who was going to captain which team. I'm just imagining off the top of my head the team that I have with the likes of Aubameyang, likes of Danny Ings. Of course, if they were managed by Chris Wilder against your team with Jurgen Klopp, I think that would be an unfair advantage to my team. My team would probably just sit down behind, try to pack it all in and hit on the counter-attack because it's Chris Wilder. Well, of course, Jurgen Klopp is going to put the living daylight out of us. But yeah, that's officially how our Premier League team of the season and our manager of the season goes on. Well, whichever way you look at that, that is certainly an amazing team of the season. You can decide whichever one you prefer. I'm sure each of us will have something to say about the other person's team, depending on the decision you make. But let's talk about arguably the most important decision when we talk about the 2019-2020 Premier League season, the player of the season. First of all, let, let me just put this out there. Must the player of the season necessarily come from the team that actually won the competition? Should that give them an extra hand or something of an advantage when you're considering player of the season? I think it should if the player himself, you know, was extraordinary, if he put in if if he put in a very good shift, um, if he put in an extra effort, if it was if it was magnificent, if it was key to the team's success. I mean, then you can really consider um, like how Eden Hazard was for Chelsea back in 2014-15 season yeah. where he was um, it was crucial to Chelsea's title winning charge. And um, you, you, you can say that, but some instances where a title winning side, you know, really doesn't have an extraordinary player, then you look at guys who put in 
very good individual performances all through the season. And we oftentimes see players who put in very good performances that even even that even better that of title winning players. And then you, you really can consider those players as well. But once a player puts in a very to really consider him because his efforts was crowned with the title. But these days, I mean, we often do not see that because teams who get to win a title is more often a team effort than one single individual's effort. That's why we get to see players like Harry Kane, we've seen Luis Suarez, and it has it's happened time and again, you know, where players who do not win league titles get a sniff at the player of the year. But if a player who was in the title winning side plays very, very, very well, then he deserves a shout out being the player of the year. Well, brilliantly analyzed there because I personally feel the player of the season should without a doubt be the best player, but also in a perspective of where his team finished. For example, if the best player in the whole league, even though it's highly unlikely, if the best player in the whole league ends up being from a team that was relegated, maybe the guy has the best numbers, it's going to put a bit of a question mark around it if he's nominated and is named as the player of the season, even though he had the best performances. So I think to an extent where the club finishes also plays a role, but definitely it's more about the player's performance. Having said that, let's take a look at some people who might be contenders for the player of the season. I mean, definitely we're going to mention Liverpool players. I mean, they, they raced through the Premier League and, of course, their players are going to be nominated. Some of the players we selected in our teams would definitely be up for consideration. But having looked at all 380 games from the Premier League season and seen over 500 players take part for 20 different clubs, who would you say deserves to be crowned as the Premier League player of the season for 2019-2020? Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's very, very clear. Like anybody who was watching Premier League this season has just one player in his mind. Definitely not Jordan Anderson. Definitely not any <laughs> level player. All fingers are pointed at Kevin De Bruyne. I mean, he's been phenomenal all through the season. Just unfortunate that Manchester City didn't win a title, but he was. He has been a testament of how good one player can be. He called on his record of twenty assists a season got 13 goals as well, so was clearly involved in uh, over 33 goals, just about 33 goals. And he he's that player who really can spark things, can can make an assist, can get deep into tackles. He does virtually everything. And um, I think it's very, very clear that one man stands out here. And um, if anybody says is another player, the person clearly is joking. Okay, so Toby officially taking shots at the Football Writers Association Awards, talking about if anybody feels Jordan Henderson, if anybody feels Kevin De Bruyne is not the player of the season, then without a doubt, they must be joking. I mean, I couldn't agree more with you. Kevin De Bruyne, like you said, equal Terry Ori's record for 20 assists. He gave an interview after the final game saying in his mind he broke the record because there were a few of his goals or his assists, rather that were chalked off. Either maybe the person that eventually scored the goal, the goal was ruled out by VAR or they felt that there was an interference and then it's not really an assist. But well, officially for the record books, the record for most assists in the Premier League season is held jointly by Thierry Henry as well as Kevin De Bruyne. Just some other things, he has now created the most chances in a single Premier League season from open play since those statistics were recorded. So it just tells you how amazing he is. He also created the most big chances. I mean, I'm, I'm just gassing up 
Kevin De Bruyne right now, but I think everybody who has watched the Premier League this season knows that without a doubt, De Bruyne has been the best player. Now, that's no debate. I mean, I'm agreeing with you 100%. Anybody that has a different opinion should definitely let us know. It's going to be a long discussion. But another thing that was clear this season was that Liverpool, without a doubt, were the best team in the Premier League. Nobody could touch them with an 18-point pool, if I can put it that way. And they go into the 2020-2021 season having won the league at the earliest match day ever. That's in the league era, Premier League era since 1992. They won after 31 matches. Do you think they have it in them to go on to defend this title next season? Uh, well, it's 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 a very very long shot. But Liverpool, looking at this side, I think they have it in them because you look at other teams who are uh, who who might be wrestling for the title, Liverpool next season. You ask yourself, like, do they have really have what Liverpool has going forward? Like, look at Liverpool's attack; they can rattle any defense in Premier League, let alone in the world. You know, on a given day, on any day, Salah, Mane, Firmino. And the hard-working through in midfield, can any team, you know, um, bring about such quality, uh, so, such level of hard-working players? And then there's Virgil van Dijk in defence and um, there are full-backs, Robert Zin and um, Alexander Arnold. They are obviously like the best defenders, best full-backs in the world. So you ask yourself, if you look at Liverpool's team, the first thing you ask yourself, if you want to probably analyse what's going to happen going forward, is what do you think they can improve? And to be very, very honest, it's really going to be hard for you to actually point out a particular area where they need to improve because they are a well-drilled team, well-oiled. Jurgen Klopp has done a magnificent job with this team. And um, for a team that finished the season before this one, that was last season, with um, 98 points. 97. Yeah, 97 points. And then coming back to win the league title with um, 99 points. It says a lot about the hunger, the drive, the level of hard work these guys put in. And it is going to be very hard to see any team will sub them next year. The only team that possibly can do what Liverpool what Liverpool did this year has to be Manchester City. But right now, with the the, the players moving out of, of what might possibly look like a rebuild next year, I really do not... Manchester City will be able to live up to Liverpool's um, really, really high standards next year. They can come closer, probably close the gap between themselves and Liverpool this season to about maybe it's going to be like 10 points or 9 points, but I do not see any anybody who's stopping Liverpool next year. So, putting wow. it simply... Okay, I, I mean, Liverpool if you look at the table, the, the fact that they finished 18 points clear of the nearest challengers pretty much gives you an indication as to why I think you feel nobody will be able to close the gap. Even if they can, it might still be double digits. But we've seen a trend recently in the Premier League. Barring Manchester City, who are able to defend the league, we've usually seen the defending champions kind of tail off. You cast your mind back to Antonio Conte's team. After winning the league in 2017, they fell outside the top four in 2018. Leicester, even though that was a fluke, Leicester also fell by the wayside. So you get this narrative where it feels like the defending champions have to always strengthen. Now, you spoke about where Liverpool could strengthen. I think they need to get one or two of these scenarios. Either they get a new striker that can get them consistent goals. We saw Firmino score less than 10 goals in the Premier League. For someone who was in the top five for highest shots in the whole league, it's just not good enough. I know Firmino brings a whole lot to that Liverpool team. He's the linchpin between the likes of Mane and Salah. But there were matches where they needed money 
finally to actually get that last ditch goal or they needed a penalty from Milner. So they need a striker that will get them those goals. And also they need a goal-scoring midfielder. You mentioned how that midfield three is a very well-drilled machine and they are major hard workers. But I think the kind of thing that they had with Felipe Coutinho, a midfielder that can guarantee them 10 league goals, they definitely need that. So that for whatever reason, if the likes of Mane, Salah and Firmino are off-color, they can still get goals from somewhere deep. So, I mean, let me just quickly pick your brains. Do you actually think they are going to go on to win the league next season? I, I honestly think they can. Now, you mentioned the areas where you think they need to improve, but if you look at that team closely, you realize that they also have those players. Talk about the goal-scoring midfielder. They have two who do not who who who, who you don't who you don't list as their official starters. Of, yeah. of course, their starters include um, Vinaldom, Henderson, Fabinho, yeah. and um, those are those are the three we, yeah. that normally start most of the games, and maybe Thomas Müller at times. But in that team squad, they have players like um, Naby Keita. They also have um, Alexander. I uh, know, sorry, did I say Alexander? Oxley Chamberlain. These guys are midfielders that get goals. Um, Oxley just came back from a very nasty injury this season, and then you know grew into the team gradually. And, of course, he picked up on from at some point. Um, Nabikita has been struggling with injuries ever since he arrived at the Bessa side. And they'll be hoping that this coming season he really gets into himself. The kind of Nabikita, the kind of player we saw, um, the kind of player he is, is a is a fantastic midfielder. He controls the game, he scores goals, yeah. he hits the balls very, very hard, just like he did against Chelsea about a week ago. So these are players that can come in and be who you just described now. Those, you know, guys that can get goals from midfield. For attackers, I, I really think it's going to be hard to find a striker in the role mm-hmm. or who plays just like the menu and also add goals to, to it. Like, because for, for, for a team like Liverpool, they need that guy who can drop deeper and create space behind him for Mane and Salah to run into. Now, if you bring a striker who would be a, a fox in a box, where would Salah and Mane run into? So do you, 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 it's going to be, it's just like you trying to be Pennywise pound foolish. You, you want to sign a player that can get you goals, right? So you bring a, you bring a striker who, who is a fox in the box, who wants to be in the box all the time. In the process, you're going to be denying yeah. Salah and Mane their normal 20, 20 goals a season. So if you want to bring a striker who's going to score you 20 goals, it's going to be at the detriment of the other guys who, who two other guys who get you 20 goals. So, meaning you're bringing a striker who scored you 20 goals and losing the guys yeah. who are going to who, who score you 40 goals because of one guy is going to score 20. So, I think to find a striker in the profile of Firmino is going to be quite difficult. That's why I think right now they are balanced. And the good thing for them is that they found that these players at the ripe age, they are still well within their prime. That's all three of them. In fact, a cog of the, a cog of the team are still well within their prime. You're not going to grow old anytime soon. Maybe in the next two, three years, they probably start thinking of a rebuild. But right now, they really have it going for them age-wise. So I think at this okay. point, I mean, Liverpool very well said. Only officially, themselves. the Premier League for the 2019-2020 season is done. But that's not the end of football in England for the 1920 season. The final tournament, when we talk about the English top flight calendar, is on the 1st of August, which is the FA Cup final. Coincidentally, when we had Football Centrics a few episodes back, I predicted the Manchester Derby final, how I have eggs in my face right about now. It's a London Derby. 
it's Arsenal versus Chelsea. It's a fixture we've seen in cup finals time and time again. Keen Didier Drogba, who was the king of Wembley and always just found a way to score goals against Arsenal. What Chelsea would give to have Drogba play in that match on Saturday. But, but having looked at the form of both teams. What exactly are we to expect from this FA Cup final, especially after both teams at certain points this season have been very inconsistent? At certain times, we've seen them play really, really well, and at other times, they've dropped off really badly. So what are we to expect from that all-London showdown at Wembley on the 1st of August? I think it's going to be a KG encounter. Arsenal are going to look at this game as a chance to sneak back into Europe. Remember, they finished um, eighth on the table. doesn't guarantee any place in any of the European competitions. And um, they will be looking at this one as a possible um, route to to the Europa League. <laughs> how, time, uh, uh, how, the, how the mighty has fallen, though. And um, I, I think for Chelsea, you know, they, they finished already in the top four. They would have probably be riding on the confidence of that. It would have been a different situation if they failed to get in the top four and then they'll be under pressure to actually define the season itself. But right now, the season looks to be, looks to be defined already. Chelsea have no top four. They can look forward. They can have a fantastic um, transfer window by bringing in players. And even if they do not win the FA Cup tomorrow, they probably would just, you know, say, you know what, we had a decent season and that's it. But I think that will be playing on the mind of Frank Lampard. He definitely wants to win this game. Um, wants to win his first trophy as a manager. And it doesn't come well, it, although there are bigger titles, but you wouldn't want you you wouldn't say no if winning the FA Cup would be your first big well. I mean, it doesn't come bigger than this, yeah. does it? Yeah, it does yeah. come bigger than this. Like um Roberto Di Matteo won the Champions League in his first year. But I mean, winning the FA Cup in your first full season in the Premier League or top flight football really, really says a lot. And I think both managers will be eyeing that too. Ateta is just six months in to his... Um, is this more than... Uh, Seven to eight months. December. So, um, Ateta is just about... Um, it's going to be... August yeah, August is the what month of the year again. It's the eighth month of the year. So, it's going to be like his ninth month because he joined Arsenal in December. It's going to be like his ninth month into, the, into his footballing managerial career. And he'll be looking to win his, his first title as well. So, I think both managers will be very, very hungry to win a title. But as to what to expect in the game tomorrow, I expect Arsenal to be a little cautious because um, that's what has served them victories in their last big matches. Against uh, Manchester City, they weren't as as um, expressive as you think Arsenal will be. Uh, against Liverpool, the game they won 2-1 at the Emirates in the Premier League also, they weren't too expressive. To what they did was they tried to be very, very cautious, sat deep, soaked up pressure, and hit the opponents at the break. And oftentimes had a spell of possession. So they will try as much as possible to make sure that they keep it very, very tight at the back tomorrow against Chelsea. And um, try to, you know, exploit Chelsea's supposed defensive weakness. Although I expect both teams to also line up um, similarly, playing three at the back and with three attackers as well. But I think it's going to be very, very cagey. Very, very cagey. So it wouldn't be a landslide victory as we saw in the Europa League last, um, last year. I think it's going to be a very tight encounter. Maybe a 2-1, 1-0, 2-0, thereabout victory for any of the teams. 
Yeah, so you already mentioned how there was a landslide victory for Chelsea in Baku last year where they won by four goals to one. Fun fact, six of the last seven matches between Arsenal and Chelsea, we've seen both sides actually scoring. The only time both sides didn't score was when Arsenal won by two goals to nil at the Emirates back in the Premier League. And coincidentally, Chelsea have not lost in that seven-match run when they've gotten to score. Which brings us to a man who is right in the thick of this action, Olivier Giroud. He's played for both sides. He has won the FA Cup for both sides. He has a wonderful record, 16 goals in 30 FA Cup matches. Do you think he's going to have a heavy role to play in deciding where the pendulum actually swings? Of course. I mean, it's as clear as daylight that Chelsea will be playing through Giroud. He's been the man who has delivered clutch goals for Chelsea since the restart. I think he's got seven goals in his his last ten matches, which is quite incredible for someone like him. I mean, we we know him as that guy who really scores goals but has huge impact in his team's results. So I expect him to be a very, very crucial player to play a crucial role in Chelsea's um, challenge tomorrow because he, he, he simply is, um, he's been outstanding over the past few weeks. And um, I think we saw him do damage Arsenal last year in the Europa League final, got the first goal and set Chelsea off to a remarkable victory. So I don't I don't think his, his role is going to change again. He's going to be that guy. He's going to be focal point. He's going to, he's going to be the guy who tries to bring in the runners around him. Maybe it's going to be Pulisic or, Will, or, or William or Mason Mount, whoever the runners will be around him. Is that guy who will bring them in. Is the ideal target man. And I think, of course, his, his record at Wembley also speaks for itself. So you should be looking out for him if you're Arsenal defenders. Okay, let's talk about another man who has ties to both clubs. David Luiz was signed by Arsenal earlier this season in the summer. And then he has had an absolute wreck of a Premier League season with Arsenal, considering more penalties five than any other player this season. We saw something similar last season where in the Europa League final, Perecek, who had moved from Chelsea to Arsenal a lot earlier, received a lot of stick for his performance in goal, even though I felt it was unwarranted. Do you think this will play in Ateta's mind that he might potentially drop David Luiz for the FA Cup final? Of course, I think he's going to play in his mind, but I don't think he's going to drop David Luiz because if he drops David Luiz, who does he want to bring on? Because as as has... Um, as diabolic, no, as bipolar as Avelu's performance has been this season, I think he's still, he's still, he's still one of Arsenal's best defenders at the moment. I don't think um, uh, um, Ateta would fancy starting Mustafa, um, what's his name, um, Socrates Papastopoulos over yeah. David Lewis or whoever, whoever, the, whatever the options are. I think David Lewis clearly is still one of Arsenal's best defender, if not their best defender at the moment. So. Whatever um, observation, whatever sentiments he has about David Lewis, I do not think he's going to play in his mind to not start him tomorrow because clearly he offers more than what than whatever Arsenal the other options would would offer in, in that defense. All right, so before I pick your brains on what the scoreline will be in that FA Cup final as we wait for that match on the first of August, which is Saturday, do you think? There is any chance for Kepa Rizabalaga, who is the most expensive goalkeeper in the whole of world football, to stake a claim or actually be in that starting lineup for Chelsea after being dropped for the final game to for Will Caballero in their match against Wolves? Well, except Caballero has some something wrong with his hands tomorrow. 
I do not think Kepa has a chance of starting. I mean, last game he played for Chelsea, he considered five goals. Nice. Though small goals, um, you would say, you know, he couldn't have done too much to stop them. But he doesn't really inspire any confidence in Chelsea's defence. And at this point in the final, he wants your confidence to be very, very high. So why would you want to risk um, playing a goalkeeper who considered five in his last game when you have the option of playing one who kept a clean sheet in his, in his last game against um, Wolves? So I really do not think Frank Lampard will stress himself too much making that decision um, to put Kepa Rizabalaga on the bench. He's done it time and again. I don't see it being a problem this time around. I think it's, it's very, very clear and it's almost cast in stone already that Kepa wouldn't start tomorrow's game. Okay, and the moment of truth, my favorite part whenever we have analysis involving a particular game. You mentioned earlier how you think this is going to be a KG affair, but both sides might get to get a goal. What is your score prediction and who will be the winners of the 2019-2020 FA Cup? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> of course, uh, it's, I mean, my, my, my loyalty lie with the team wearing <laughs> blue. <laughs> so, in while I while, while I remain while I I try to be non-partisan when it comes to making these predictions, I think it's only fair to say that Chelsea are the better side heading into this game, riding on confidence of finishing in top four. They're obviously a better team than the Arsenal. Have got more quality players and. Um, have a have a more defined approach to games like this than Arsenal. So I think, not like I think, I know Chelsea will get a result of Arsenal, but this call line is where I really have a problem because Chelsea can be, Chelsea can actually like score about two three goals in this game. But thing is, can Chelsea keep a clean sheet in this game? Can uh, and how many goals can they limit Arsenal to? Those are the questions playing in my mind. So, ideally, I'll probably have gone for like a 2 new victory, but then Chelsea really keep clean sheets these days. So, let me just settle for a 3-1 victory for Chelsea. So, Chelsea wins this game 3-1. Okay. I mean, for me personally, I was going through some of the previous matches that they played, and for me, 2-1 just looks like the most likely scoreline personally. In fact, the last time these two teams met in the FA Cup final... 2017, yeah, yeah 2017. Was it 2017 or 2018? 2018. But it was 2017. That's when Chelsea won the league title. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 2017, okay. exactly. Arsenal won by two goals to one. Goals from Sanchez and Ramsey either side of a Diego Costa equalizer for Chelsea. So I just think this game is going to kind of end 2-1. Who is going to win it is a more difficult call. I, I, I don't know, man. Arsenal have been really good recently in the FA Cup even though like we have to go back to like seven years ago for the first time they won it in recent memory I think they've won four of the last seven FA Cup three of the last seven FA Cup trophies and at the point they had three in four I just think without faltering Chelsea defence we might just see a situation where Arsenal get to keep Chelsea in that particular one but hey I mean let's it's definitely going to be a really interesting explosive final remember it is a London derby. These two teams yeah. don't like each other. There's so much at stake, bragging rights, and everybody wants to show that at the end of the season, no matter how topsy-turvy it has been, they go on to win a particular trophy. 
I think one thing that comes to my mind is I saw a particular prediction someone made, I think it was the 17th of July. The person like had like a, a prediction of a couple of games and everything was building up to the FA Cup final. And to be very honest, he, he he was a hundred percent correct in mm-hmm. all the predictions. He said Chelsea um, asked we're going to draw. Uh, we're going to defeat Manchester City. Uh, Man United. We're going to draw against West Ham. Chelsea mm-hmm. will lose to Liverpool and beat Wolves and mm-hmm. qualify for the top four. And finally, he said Chelsea would lose to Arsenal in the final. I wouldn't lie. That tweet itself has, has kept me up some nights because I'm like, yo, is this really going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, whenever I try to, you know, just tell myself it's going to happen, like Chelsea are a better side. They should get this one. They should nick this one. And then I remember that tweet. I'm like, oh, truth be told, Arsenal have really turned to be something of a turning flesh for Chelsea when it comes to FA Cups. Yeah. Last time he played, like you rightly said, it was 2 1. And I can remember very, very well, very, very clearly heading into that final. It was, it was, it was, for me, it was about how many goals we're going to score, not yeah. if we're going to win. But I was very, very confident of a Chelsea victory because we had just won the league title that season. Yeah. And I mean, the last, the last game of the season that year was against Sunderland, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and Chelsea scored five, five goals. And it was okay. Okay. This, uh, this, this is, this is really happening. Chelsea gets Arsenal and battered them. And that game, I remember. Very well. The first 10 minutes, Arsenal got the first goal, yeah. which I still think was an offside, yeah. by the way, by Alexis Sanchez. <laughs> yeah, and then it just it just became very, very difficult breaking Arsenal down. Now, Chelsea got a red card, Victor Moses, and by the time David, um, Diego Costa equalised, Chelsea had switched to a back four. And, you know, Arsenal got the lead immediately after Chelsea scored. So it was quite... A very frustrating afternoon that day. But I really don't want. I don't want to see that happen again. And I think uh, Chelsea should avenge for that loss this time around. And uh, I really believe. I'm very, very optimistic about the Chelsea win. I think it's going to happen. Okay, Toby being very, very optimistic about a Chelsea win. Instead, he didn't want to see a situation where that prediction actually was through. That prediction was actually on Twitter. You retweeted that one, and I saw it right on the time. Yeah. Speaking of Twitter, you have to make sure you interact with both of us. Me personally, at Damiloju Salu, that is my Twitter handle. So just at D-A-M-I-L-O-J-U-S-A-L-I-U. Just give me a follow, interact with me. There's always a lot of things to talk about on there. And if you're a chess lover, you definitely want to give me a follow. I have puzzles I post <laughs> single day. Toby's also uh, picking it up with his chest, but of course, he will tell you about how to stalk him on social media. Yeah, my chess game is, uh, well, to be very honest, I've, 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 I haven't really played in a while because, mm. I mean, yeah, but how would I describe it though? I just, I got tired at some point because it was really, really tasking. You, yeah. You're playing a game with someone online and you just really have to immerse yourself in the game mm-hmm. so you do not lose concentration. And it took a lot, it takes a lot of concentration. And I haven't really had enough time to concentrate on one thing in the past few weeks. So and then by the time I returned, I lost lost um, a couple of steam and I lost my first my, my the few games I played. And it just didn't matter anymore. But I think I'll pick it up again once um the FA Cup 
it's over and Chelsea win. Sure. Hopefully. <laughs> but anyways, you can follow me on Twitter at um P2B.C-H-E-T-O-B-I. And just give me a follow. I definitely will follow you back. Yeah, so that's it. Okay. And of course, you need to follow Football Centric. It means that you need to watch out for more episodes. We're done with the one for this week, but officially we'll be back next week. Remember to enjoy everything sporty because, I mean, in the next few days, it's going to be all about European football as we're counting down to the resumption of the UEFA Europa League as well as the UEFA Champions League. We're signing out officially with Radam Lujusaliu and Toby Adibi on Football Centric for this week. We'll catch you again next time. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Football Centric. Please join us again another time.